and welcome to the December 2009 edition of Ordinary Means. Uh, we're your podcast on the web at OrdinaryMeans.com. And today, I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hi, Sean. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Good. Well, we're here uh, here today. We're going to do a couple things today. We've been doing a lot of interviews in the uh, the past few months. We've got some other great interviews coming up next year. In fact, let's uh, let's fill folks in on what they can look forward to in the coming months. Uh, next month, um, in January, we're going to have an interview with uh, Jim Belcher, who is the author of Deep Church. Uh, a let's see, I've got the book here. Subtitle. A Third Way Beyond Emerging and Traditional. And I have to say, the one thing about this book that struck me um, as one who has not been that interested in the whole emerging church movement um, is that this book speaks in a way to, um, uh, I think, to pastors today and to lay people today that you don't have to be interested in the emerging church to really benefit from this book. Uh, in fact, we'll talk in a minute. We're going to talk about some of the books that are we've been reading lately, and this is one of them in preparation for that uh, interview. So I'll talk in a minute about how that's uh, really been affecting me. I've, I've really gained from it. In fact, I was talking with Jim via email in preparation, and he mentioned that uh, Brian Chapel, who is the president of Covenant Theological Seminary, is having his whole staff read uh, Jim's book. So looking forward to that interview. Uh, and in preparation, if you can't hold off till then, if you read Modern Reformation, uh, this month's issue has an interview uh, with Jim in it. So, um, and they also did a uh, an audio interview. Oh, I listened to it on the web in um, early to mid August. So if you go to Whitehorse Inn, um, there's uh, there's an interview with Jim that was, I think, the whole program actually. 50 oh, minutes, okay. Maybe. Okay, well, may, it may be that that um, that the interview in the magazine was taken from, right, right, the White Horse Inn. But some people like to listen rather than read. So yeah, yeah, transcripts are always nice. So we've got that's coming up in January. Then starting in February, uh, Matt and I are going to attack this whole. Uh, we're not going to attack. That's that's too strong of a word. Um, Since these are all friends of ours, we probably yes, shouldn't. These attack. are all friends of ours. We're going to look at. Uh, this whole two kingdom thing. Uh, this is something that if you haven't heard about it yet, you will hear about it because this is the new trend. There's a number of books coming out on uh, the two a two kingdom view. Um, Michael Horton's had a book. Do you remember what the name of Mike's book was on uh, I the don't, two kingdoms? I don't. I don't know. I don't have that that right in head. front of me. But he has a book on that. There is a. Um, uh, we're going to be talking with, uh, Lord willing, with Jason Stellman, who's the author of a new book called, what's the name of the book? The name of the book is Dual Citizens, uh, where he uh, takes a two-kingdom view. And I, I think in some ways he takes a, if Jim Belcher takes a third way between traditional and emerging churches, Jason Stellman is trying to um, be generous in his in his two-kingdom view uh, so uh, we're going to talk with him, Lord willing, and Lord willing, then in February, March, we'll be talking with Jack Kinnear, who is a uh, professor at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary, uh, who also has a, a huge uh, amount of um, a thought that he has put into uh, into these issues. Uh, Jack was formerly with the OPC. He's in the the uh, the formerly with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's in the Presbyterian Church in America now, the PCA. And uh, I guess, Matt, you were telling me at one time he was close to being a theonomist. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, and and what's intriguing about that is that you've got somebody who, it, it, you know, came sort of to the brink of it. A lot of people would think is a fairly uh, extreme position. Um, you, you know, there's a lot about theonomy. Um <laughs> There's a lot there. Anyways, we can let Jack explain himself. But I think what it what it is is that he's somebody who is reflective. Um, in, in my mind, he's been very helpful to me. We've had we've had Jack on the podcast before a time or two, and um, on this, he, he's really given me a lot to think about. I think getting his perspective 
um, in on this will be very, very good. I'm looking forward to the time. Matt, we should give a little bit of a definition of these terms, because as you and I were talking before the podcast, really a two-kingdom view is at one end of the spectrum and theonomy is at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe uh, maybe we could give a little bit of definition there. I mean, can you think of a way we could briefly explain the two-kingdom view? Yeah. Um, so the book, uh, um, I'm looking at uh, a recent dialogue that's gone on on the web in the early part of October. A book that might be helpful to people if you want to get a feel for um, Horton's position is a book called Where in the World is the Church? Um so that may be a hopeful, a helpful book if people are looking for something that uh, of Horton making an objective position. There's also Sean can post this since we entered into this. He can post on the on the blog when this goes up uh, on our blog uh, a link to um, Justin Taylor's blog where there's a, a bit of a conversation about um, Horton answering some objections to to uh, two kingdom theology as uh, he's put it out there. So we'll put those links up there so people can sort of get into the conversation a little bit ahead of time. So a brief compass, what does a two-kingdom view mean? Uh, Let me throw one more book out there that will um, give a much broader sweep um, to people. And uh, it's a little bit of an academic read, but I have found it eminently helpful for getting sort of the biggest picture on some of this stuff and sort of stepping out of an individual debate between between individuals. Is this Carson's book? And kind of get a bigger perspective is Carson's book, Christ and Culture Revisited, um, is eminently helpful. And you've got to kind of not slog because it's not slogging. It's just – it's a little bit academic. It's classic Carson. It's very well argued and and you can't find somebody that objects to it because it's just so well done. But when he gets to the end, he does interact some with these different positions Um, and, and I found that conversation very, very helpful. So that's a good spot if people want to get a bigger a bigger perspective of the whole relationship of um, of Christ and culture uh, overall. So basically, a two kingdoms view, um, which actually uh, everybody, but um, you know, someone who believes we ought to have a theocracy, um, a two kingdoms view. So this this encompasses even the people that are debating right now. Um, it basically says that there is um, a, a city of man and a city of God. Maybe that's the easiest way to put it. That there is uh, this fallen world, if you will, that we might call culture. And then there is the distinctive people of God, the city of God. Um, and so it, those two are um, separable and they should be kept separate. And uh, if you're somebody who, my terminology, uh, a high two kingdoms person doesn't necessarily see that those intersect in any sort of formal way. Of course, in theonomy or in theocracy, they're united. So I think that a high two-kingdom perspective, this is just me talking, Matt personally, um, I think that a high two-kingdom perspective is is reactionary against theonomy, and it is, um, it's trying to say that the, these two shouldn't be even contemplated to meet. They might meet in individuals, but what I find is that um, there's not even that sort of hopefulness that they would meet in individuals or or um, even laying that vision of what a disciple's life would look like out for people. So if you read what Sean will post up on the blog uh, about Horton's objections, he is thankful for William Wilberforce. My concern is I sincerely doubt that somebody who went to a church that was what I would call high two kingdoms would ever gain the vision to do in our time what William Wilberforce did in his time as an individual Christian. That's my concern in this. So really the the two kingdom view, within the two kingdom view, believing that you know I'm a I am a citizen of heaven. Um, I'm also a citizen of earth. My primary citizenship is in heaven. Right. The, the two kingdom question is how much am I a citizen of earth? As a full citizen of heaven, how, what is my Christian responsibility as I interact with culture? This is why, uh, this is why the, the book is called Christ and Culture. Um, you know, what is the relationship between Christ and culture? And that's the two kingdom issue. It's, so it's a, it's a big issue. It's not just a theological, 
uh, you know, something that scholars are going back and forth on. There are real questions involved, and I think um, I think that's why it'll be good for us to discuss it. And my my hope is that in discussing it, uh, we can really address uh, some of the real practical issues involved with um, you know not just promote a position, but mm-hmm. figure out what is it that the positions are fighting for, right. And, right. and bring that home to us. So that's, mm-hmm. that's next year. That's going to start off our year, the, the interview with Jim Belcher, uh, Lord willing talking with, with Jason and with Jack in, um, in the later months at the beginning of the year. Uh, today we've got a question from the blog that we want to address, a question on baptism. We've not spent a lot of time, uh, talking about baptism. Uh, that said, there is one uh, or t- two, two months that we did on a series we called Baptists and Presbyterians Together, which is mm-hmm. one of our most linked to, uh, w- one of the most linked to podcasts that we've done. Uh, so it was a big deal and, uh, encourage you to go into, uh, to listen to that. We'll get to, uh, this fellow's question on baptism a little bit later, as well as, uh, We'll talk about some of the issues surrounding baptism. So in a sense, this will be our our baptism podcast. Uh, but before we get there, we thought it would be good to include a uh, a regular slot in the podcast for Matt and I to give just a peek at some of the books we're reading. Matt and I are both avid uh, book buyers and uh, book readers. Sometimes pastors are more book buyers than they are book readers. Um, but when we do get our uh, eyes on the page... Um, there's a lot of great stuff out there, and we'd like to point you to some of it. So we're going to begin to include a little regular feature uh, when we're not doing the interviews, uh, include a little feature to include some of those books. So, Matt, why don't we start out with you? You're reading one. Uh, you're reading Keller's latest book, aren't you? Yeah. So um, we, in our church, um, we have been taking uh, our whole church uh, population through an intentional discipleship track. So we have an idea of what kind of disciples we think that Christ would have us become. And so we're trying to purposefully use uh, works that already exist out there, books to read through and to study through. We lecture during our Sunday school hour and we discuss the content in our community groups. And it's been very, very good. Um, God's used it well in our folks. And we're um, a little bit more than uh, halfway through that. And we're to uh, coming to a spot where we were going to use the book How People Change, uh, which is an excellent, excellent book. It's put out by our friends at CCEF in Philadelphia. A very, very helpful book. But as we've discussed it, um, we think that an equally helpful book is Keller's new book, um, Counterfeit Gods, a little bit more directed to folks in the pew than necessarily the counselor. How People Change, I think, is good for the counselor to as an insightful book to help them as they come alongside people and counsel them. Um, but a little bit maybe textbooky for um, to just hand to a congregant. Where Counterfeit Gods is, because it's the product of, of preaching over the years, um, is very much aimed right at the pew, as I call it. And the, it, it enshrines um, in book form very helpfully uh, really the way that Keller has taught, the way that Keller has done evangelism, um, and the way that, that Keller has been useful in people's lives and in helping them grow. Uh, conceptually, here's what the what the what the book is going after, and I just saw this in my own home this morning. I was home. I'm not typically home when the children get up. I was out late last night, but um, I was home this morning, and we homeschool our kids. And um, one of my children was having a hard time heading towards doing school, and um, shaving, and you know, mom's dealing with them and explaining. We'll take a break for Thanksgiving, but we're not quite to Thanksgiving yet. There's things we need to get done. And as the child's objecting. In the back of my mind, having read this book by Keller, I'm saying to myself, there's something else he loves more. There's something that he thinks will make him happy other than doing school. And doing school is a barrier to him achieving the happiness that he wants, that he thinks will come from, and then you fill in the blank. I don't know what the fill in the blank was today. But school was a barrier to that. And, and Keller tries to explain what I just very simply said about one of my own children. He tries to explain that most of the time, that's what's going on in our hearts. That, that functionally, 
we are bowing to an idol. We're making it the center. We're um, we're we're putting our hopes, uh, our aspirations, our dreams, our expectations into that, as though that thing in that moment can save us. Um, and it's terribly insightful. It's very much in the stream of, you know, as you read the book and as you, uh, not necessarily the book, but as you read more broadly, I was just, I was on, on a long drive yesterday and was listening to him, to Keller at an evangelism conference and trying to hear him tell about uh, how he uses this particular kind of insight about idols in, in reaching unbelievers. One of the things that he talks about is that what we all typically do is we take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. So we'll take something like, um, oh, I don't know. We'll, we'll take something like um, marriage. And uh, we'll say, marriage is a good thing. It's not good for a man to be alone. I really want to be married. But we'll love it too much. We'll take a good thing and we'll make it into an ultimate thing. We'll make our life all about that. So that when I meet somebody, I completely distort the relationship. Because all my hopes are pinned on it. And really all my hopes are pinned on this person. And that marriage, in that, in that, in my thinking, will save me. You can multiply that out. You can just say that it's about a job. It's about a computer game. That's what will make me happy. Uh, you can multiply it out to um, food. You can multiply it out to drink. Um, all of the distortions that people live... They live in the hopes that it will make them happy. And in that moment, they put their hopes in it. And functionally, that thing operates as a savior to them. That's what Keller's after in the book. Terribly insightful. Will absolutely tear you up personally um, because you'll realize how much of an idolater you are. But to me, as a minister, uh, that's what I need. I, I need that insightfulness about myself so that I begin to see it in others and I bring the, begin to bring the gospel to bear in their lives. And I can say, you're putting your hopes in that. And that's a created thing. And it's going to disappoint you. You're setting yourself up. Only God can give you that. We need to be the first to tear down our idols. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Just, just as in the Old Testament, it was the kings who were to be first to tear down the idols in the land. Uh, so too, we need to set an example. Well, and it, and it, it recognizing the prevalency of it in the heart also changes, and I think that this is one of the reasons why, and many people have commented on this, Keller's preaching seems very laid back. It, it doesn't feel very, it doesn't have a lot of that sort of prophetic stance, at least that's the language we were taught in, at Westminster, that, that preaching has sort of an, an edge to it where you're being confronted with the word. And, and Keller's never been noted for sort of being that way. Like you couldn't, if you were to take Al Martin and and um, and uh, Tim Keller and put them side by side, you'd go, do these guys even believe in this, that preaching is the same thing? Well, you could ask the same question about if you put uh, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John next to each other. I think you would get the same situation. I think, I think with Peter, you would get... Uh, much more that prophetic stance that you're talking about. Blazing sort of a, fire. Bla yeah, yeah, blazing fire. <laughs> and with John, you're going to get, hey, let me just, you know, let me tell you about the love of God in yeah. your life and how that works itself out in this, in this awesome Christ that we have. So, so it's right. really, it's not, uh, and I think we, I think we miss that. Um, many of our preaching books miss that is that God calls all kinds of people. Well, you know, you know who misses it, I think, the most, Matt, is church planting. Because I mm -hmm. think in church mm -hmm. planting, yep. we're often yep. looking, we're looking for the Peters yep. when sometimes God wants to use a John. Yep. And, and one of the things that we've seen out here in the Pacific Northwest is there's a lot of guys that are going as pairs to plant churches. And I think that there's something really insightful about that. Because the Peters are not necessarily all that relational. But they're good leaders and they're good with vision. You, you've got to imagine that Paul and Barnabas had a bit of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's given me a lot to think about in terms of going as pairs. That's what Jesus did. And I bet those pairs were pretty intentional. So I, I think you're right. I think the reason, despite the fact 
that there's a lot of people that love Al Martin's preaching. I've listened to a heck of a lot of it, and it's been transformative because he really confronts you with your sin and, and your need for repentance and the glories of Christ. I think that the thing, the reason why, even though Keller doesn't have that much, what I would call that prophetic stance to him, but why people have grown so much under his preaching is because he goes at this level that's under the sin. He goes at this level that's the sin under the sin. He's not dealing with the fact that you're angry with your spouse. He's dealing with the fact, why are you angry with your spouse? He's dealing with the fact that you love your spouse more than you love Jesus. Well, and maybe that you love your space more than you love your spouse. Yeah. And that, 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 I, that I think my life will be happy. I put my hopes in having some quiet time when I get home from work. And so if I don't get quiet time when I get home from work, then I punish everybody because you haven't bowed to my idol. And I expect you to because I've put my hopes in my idol. And if you get in the way between my and my idol, I'm going to punish you because I think my idol can give me what I'm really looking for, what will really make me happy. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's great stuff. Yeah, and that's – so I think that that's why – that, that's why I think the book's been so helpful to us and why we're going to use it is when you have that kind of insightfulness about your own heart, and it's from God's word. I mean, the idolatry stuff is all over the place, but it, it, um, it it's like you sort of get an, an eye opener and you go, oh, I didn't even see that that was there. Um, then it, it changes the way that you counsel people. It changes the way that you minister within your own family. I, I couldn't have had that kind of dialogue in my brain about one of my children struggling to have school uh, six months ago. Um, and it changes the way that you preach. Because it takes um, – or uh, Sean, you probably remember from Christ Center Preaching by Chapel. He gives you this idea of trying to look at each text with a fallen condition focus. Do you remember that? Do you, I don't know if yeah. you remember that. Or yes. Yeah. So, so that there's, there's something about our fallen condition that's in focus there in that text, and that's what you've got to sort of hone in on is that God wants to minister the gospel. He wants to minister Christ through this text, right? And I think the way that Keller refines that, that very good point by Chapel is he says, what's the idol here that God's picking on? What's the idol that somebody here is following? What's the idol that we're tempted to follow that God's trying to correct us from? Uh, so I'm doing uh, the the why would we do communion? Why do we have um, – do, I'm doing the six-week worship series right now. And um, I'm in the last week, and I'm trying to explain to people why do we end a service with communion uh, benediction? Why, why, do we, why do we end that way? What is that about? I mean an, an offertory makes sense to people. We respond to God in gratitude. But why would we do communion frequently? Why would we, why would we end with a benediction? What's going on there? Well – Sermons almost always um, pull out our idols. And, and one of the things about coming to a table where we have spiritual food is it deals with our idol that I can live by bread alone. And God is saying here, you can't. You need this food to live. You need my grace to live. You're not self-sufficient. You can't save yourself. You need me. It supremely reminds us that this is not about, okay, you've heard the message, now go try harder. It's exactly. you've heard the message, now depend more on yes. the grace that is available to you at the cross. Yeah, that abide in me is not try harder. It's realize that you're going to mess up more if you're not desperate and rely. Well, you know, I think, Matt, that's what um, I'm appreciating so much about this book that I'm reading right now. Uh, mm -hmm. Praying, uh, praying life. Go for it. Yeah. By uh, by Paul Miller, is that which has got rave reviews oh, everywhere. Oh, it's and and I'll tell you this. I I will. Um, I'm I'm the type of personality that if I uh, get bored with a book, I will often put it down, and you know maybe come back to it later. Uh, and by the time I've come back to a book, I will, you know, I'll have to start all over again, working through it to get the idea of what the book is talking about. Right. This this book has been one of those books that I am purposely going slow because I am just I'm just milking it. It's just feeding my soul. And uh he he speaks there are a lot of great books on prayer out there. Right. With without doubt there are and I would encourage you go back listen to our books podcast uh earlier this year 
we went through a ton of books on prayer. There are some great, great books on prayer. In fact, we might have even mentioned this book at that point. I think we mentioned that it was coming out, but neither of us had had, had, had seen uh, it yet. Had, had yeah. Seen it yet. Yeah. I I have been reading it for the past two months, and I'm not much beyond chapter three or four. And I've looked through the whole book, but I am. I'm just, I'm just milking it. And I keep going back, you know, of all things, I keep going back to the introduction. I, I have to read this. I was, I told you this earlier. I want to read a little quote. Um, what, what Miller does is he speaks to Americans about prayer. I think there's a lot of great books on prayer out there, but they don't speak to Americans where Americans are today. Now I don't know how this book would would do in a in a different culture in a different country, but he addresses it to Americans, mm-hmm. uh, similar to the way uh, like a piper addresses his "Don't waste your life" to um, to wealthy wealthy American culture, and because Miller comes at prayer from that angle, he comes with this sensitivity to the sins of Americans. He comes with a sensitivity to the types of things that people like you and I, Matt, excuse me, the things that we are struggling with in prayer or Mm -hmm. the ways that we struggle to pray. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you go back and you read a Spurgeon book on prayer, it's going to be great. It's going to have a lot of great truths, but it might not get at where you are struggling with prayer. And I think that is the beauty of this book. There's nothing new in this book. In fact, a lot of this book I'm finding is, um, is revisiting some of the work that his dad, Jack Miller did. Uh, he takes, if you remember the, uh, illustration that Jack Miller used where he talks about the, as we grow in the Christian life, it's not a matter of us getting better and better and better, but it's mm-hmm. a matter of us growing in our knowledge of the holiness of God and growing in our knowledge of, of our own personal sin. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, as we grow as a Christian, that gap between the holiness of God and our sin doesn't get closer. That gap actually gets wider as right. the Holy Spirit works in our life. And, and Which should, should have the result. That grace means more to me. Exactly. Not that I'm more downcast. And Paul Miller takes that and he says, he says, if we understand that, then prayer should become more important to us because we mm. have more of a need and a dependence on grace. So he really takes, takes, mm. uh, what a lot of us learn from his dad mm. and, uh, and brings it into this. But let me, let me read you a little excerpt from the introduction that shows how he addresses our sins. He says, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. (laughs) We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless as if we're wasting time. Every bone in our body screams, get to work. Then when we aren't working, we're used to being entertained. Television, the internet, video games, and cell phones make free time as busy as work. Now, there's at some point we need to do a podcast on the relationship between technology and the ordinary means. Because Hmm. right there, you know, the fact that cell phones, in addition to creating a convenience, also make us, they they fill our free time Mm -hmm. in a way that removes... Um, the solitude. I tell you, Matt. One of our biggest listened to podcasts is the the podcast we did on silence and solitude. Mm. That's the one that people who listen keep coming back to me and saying, mm-hmm. "No, the one I really appreciate was that one on solitude." And you know why? I think it's because the people who are listening to our podcast are in America, right. and that that's what they're dealing yeah. with. Yeah. When, oh, just, you mean that I got texted while I was in the middle of the podcast today? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we we don't know silence. And when we hear that there's such a thing as solitude and peace and rest and Sabbath, we go, oh, I want that. <laughs> Give right, me that. Right. He goes Please. on. He, he says, when we do slow down, we slip into a stupor. 
Exhausted by the pace of life, we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. We try to be quiet, but we're assaulted by what C.S. Lewis calls the kingdom of noise. Everywhere we go, we hear background noise. And if the noise isn't provided for us, we bring it in via our iPod. Even our church services can have that same restless energy. There's little space to be still before God. We want our money's worth, so something should always be happening. We're uncomfortable with silence. One of the subtlest hindrances to prayer is probably the most pervasive. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. Because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Mm. Money can do what prayer does, and it's quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents makes us structurally independent of God, and as a result, exhortations to pray don't stick. That's unbelievable. Oh, and that's the whole book just... The whole book just keeps going like that. Yeah. Yeah. A mutual friend of ours, um, Dennis Griffith, um, has been posting. um, I don't know if you if you're uh, uh, friends with him on Facebook, but he's been posting quotes as he's been reading through the book. And they've been, you know, it's just like what you just read. And it's like, oh, my, I really need to read this book, like maybe once a month for a year. (laughs) Well, it's it's one of those books. It's you cannot sit down and and read it through in one sitting. Because right. there's little phrases that he uses, like the, the phrase, you know, the, the kingdom of noise. He uses that, that phrase of a, a restless energy. I mean, right. I, I just, I mean, I sat for 20 minutes and just pondered this idea of restless energy and how, what are the ways, you know, you doodling, doodling a little list of all the ways that we have a, have a restless energy about us. As we go trying to trying to live the Christian life, yeah, no, that's that's very that's very insightful. Well, and Matt, we need to get to this question, but you'd mentioned there was one other book. Um, well, let, let me do this. Let me just mention one more plug for Deep Church. If you want to pick this up before we do the interview with uh, with Jim, and in fact, if you want to post, a, if you've read Deep Church or you pick it up and you read it, if you've read uh, uh, Stellman's book. Um, if you want to post your questions on our blog, we'd be happy then when we do the interview to, um, to incorporate some of those questions mm-hmm. into yep. our interview. So feel, please feel free to do that. And that's one benefit of us letting you know ahead of the time who we're going to be talking to. But just one plug for Deep Church. I have been, th- this book too has been, uh, really helping me through thinking through and rethinking through, uh, why we do church, how we do church. How, why are the ordinary means important? Because Belcher has a, a very strong emphasis on the ordinary means of grace uh, in the midst of both traditional and emerging churches, finding that dependence on God, which I really, really appreciate. But I just want to give you one phrase he uses in here, and I asked him about it. He borrowed it uh, from a couple um, Australian authors. But he, he uses this phrase. He says, we as churches need to be inviting people to the well more than we are building fences. Hmm. And that, just that phrase, um, I've since ordered the, the book by these guys. I'm going to, I'll, uh, maybe I'll put up a link to that book. Um, What's the because book? I, I don't have the, I don't have the title right in front of me. It's, uh, it's filed away in an email for, um, is it, it's two Australians. You said that. Yeah. It's, uh, I can, I can pull the name of the book up here in just a minute. I'm um, guessing I know what the book is. Okay. Well, he he pulls that <laughs> phrase from the. You're guessing. You do. You, do you know what the title is? I'm guessing that it's the shaping of things to come. That's it. That's the book. Right. And yep. uh, he uses this phrase, and and I really uh, appreciate that, particularly when we're talking about. And it's it's a term that comes from people who are concerned about evangelism. Mm-hmm. In that. We don't want, if somebody who is a new believer comes into the church, we don't want to immediately put up the fences of theology and say, wait, you don't believe that? Wait, you don't believe that? Hold on, let me convince you of pedo-baptism or else you mm-hmm. can't worship with us. Right. And, uh, you know, and even in a minute here as we address this question on baptism, um, you know, I want to remind folks that this, you know, there are, there are important issues and then there are 
less important issues. Uh, there are issues of the gospel, you know, and then there are issues of theology that, while important, are not the ones we need to be dividing over. And you and I have both, you know, talked about this in our last in the podcasts that we did on Baptists and Presbyterians together, that we don't think baptism is one of those issues that needs to be dividing the church. Mm-hmm. Um, we can we can live together on this one. We can t- continue to uh, argue um, in love, but at the same time, we need to both remember that we've we've got the gospel, and as we're inviting people in, we don't want to put up fences that keep people away. We don't want to put up a fence that says, you know, oh, wait, you're not educated. Uh, wait, you're not this, you're not that. Uh, we want to be, we want to be welcoming people, inviting them to the well. And I picture there the, you know, of course, the, um, the woman at the well mm-hmm. who is, uh, who is awash in her sin. She is drowning in her sin. And Jesus says, you're still thirsty, aren't you? <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, come and let me, come and get a drink. And it's in that process of giving people that drink of Jesus, that discipleship begins to happen. And yes, at some point they're going to come to understand the theology behind baptism and the theology between behind why the liturgy of our church looks the way it is. And, you know, and the, all of the, the different uh, doctrines that go into what we're doing. But if we put all that stuff up front as if the gospel is right doctrine, mm-hmm. um, we've created a legalism. Right. We've done the same thing that the Pharisees did. And so, so that phrase was um, very, very helpful to me. And his book is full of, of drawing out the way that we do church now and the way that the emerging do church now. And... <coughs> Excuse me. And asking the question, are these the best ways? Are these the most Christ-honoring ways? And and what you find, uh, Kevin D. Young did a review of his book, and what you find is what Kevin D. Young does, is, is that uh, Jim Belcher is really not arguing for a third way. He, he's just arguing for a, um, you know, a soft traditionalism. He's offering what most of us are probably already doing in that we're constantly seeking to reform the work of the church. Mm-hmm. We're, we're seeking to always be reforming and always analyzing how we're doing worship and um, how we're doing discipleship, how we're doing evangelism as a church. And if we're not doing it well, now the, the danger here is that we can be led into methodologies that are faddish, mm-hmm. and we don't want to go there. But the thing that Belcher encourages us to do is come back to the Word and be reforming according to the Word. And I think in, the, in that sense, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to Jim more about it. Good. Uh, you had one more book. Yeah, um, just for people who have sort of followed us as we've talked and dialogued about worship and about the gospel shape of worship. And we're coming up on, Sean, I think it's four years that we've been doing this podcast, yeah. three or four years, um, that we've spent a lot of time talking about worship. And uh, one of the books that recently I'm finishing a worship series right now for our congregation over six weeks. Um, one of the books that I have read through this um, is Christ-Centered Worship which is a new book out by Brian Chappell. It's from Baker Academic. It's a little academic. You're going to have to have some background in worship. Eminently, eminently, eminently helpful in really um, putting forward not necessarily a uh, anything particular as a suggestion other than that the gospel should shape our worship and that, um, and that there's a lot of ways that that can happen but are you thoughtfully doing it? And um, it's it's been very very helpful read for me personally as I lead my church, um, and and I think it would be useful to a lot of people because he's really, um, you know, he's not trying to get you to settle somewhere traditional contemporary emerging. You know, he's not trying to get you to settle somewhere. He's trying to get you with the fullness of the que- to wrestle with the fullness of the question. And the question is a big question. 
Um, and I, I find his way of trying to help you navigate it very, very helpful. I think so that's it's recommended. That's a good way to put that. And because that's what we need to do is, is struggle with the question. And how, how did you put that? You said with the, with the, the broadness of the question. What was yeah, the word the you used? Of the question. Yeah, yeah and, it's and a big question. I think that is so vital because we often come to these uh, these topics and we say, "No, it's got to be A or B." Mm-hmm. And when you struggle with the bigness of the question, you're struggling with with the depth and the the breadth of the issues involved, and not only. Uh, can that lead to the right way if we're doing that, if we're doing that according to the Word of God, but that can lead to growth in the individual. And no so, so I absolutely appreciate any book that's willing, um, willing to push those things rather than push a, uh, a view, a, a specific, uh, view that is, um, that's nailed down. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to, we want to, we want to ask some of those broader questions so that then when we do come to a view, uh, we can hold that view with humility. We can hold that view with, uh, with a graciousness and a generosity towards those who don't hold it. Um, and, and we can hold that view in a way that is still, uh, receiving of others who are, who are, who are outside of, you know, of our circle. Mm-hmm. So, so that's good. That's good. So I'll, I will put links, all these books that we've mentioned, I'm going to put links to them up there. Matt, we've got about, uh, 15 minutes left here. Let's, uh, let's take this, uh, time and answer this question we got on the blog. Um, we got a question coming in here from Ashwin. And, uh, he asks, he's, uh, from a, he says he's from a Baptist background. He's been come convinced of, uh, infant baptism. And, uh, and yet he, he came up with an, an issue came across, came to him with which he's been struggling. And that's this issue of household baptism. And mm-hmm. so maybe before I, I give his question, maybe we need to give a little bit of background on the idea of household baptism. Okay. Uh, the, the first thing is, Simply that when you talk about household baptism, you're referring to uh, several bo- several verses in the book of Acts. Uh, the first is the Philippian jailer. Uh, two of those verses occur in Acts 16. The first is the Philippian jailer who is uh, becomes convinced of the gospel, and he he looks at the apostles and he says, "What do I need to do to be saved?" And their response to him is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Uh, the, the apostles have not talked to anybody else. They've only talked to the Philippian jailer. Uh, but he says, okay, come home with me. <laughs> and, uh, and so they went home with him and they, they spoke to the word to him and all who were in his household. And, um, they were, and that night it says they were baptized. He and all his household. So we've got what we would call a household baptism. The second one is Lydia, seller mm-hmm. of purple, and it's a mm-hmm. very similar situation. She responds to Paul, and it says, and she and her household were baptized in response to her response. So there's this relationship between the, the head of household and the baptism of the entire household. Right. And so that's what Ashwin is talking about in terms of household baptisms. And, and this is a point of dispute between, um, those who would hold to a pedo Baptist position and those who would hold to a Baptistic position or a right. believer's baptism position. Credo baptism, right? Um, the, it is a, it's a point of dispute. Um, the, uh, the credo position would say, uh, well, probably what happened is everybody in the household also heard the word and also believed. And with the Philippian jailer, you have that where the apostles do go and they do preach to the whole household. With Mm -hmm. Lydia, it doesn't say that explicitly that they preach to the whole household, only that as a response to Lydia's faith was the whole household baptized. Um, could, Could it be assumed that the word was also preached? Well, yes, because I think in every case, um, 
the word and baptism have to go together. The sacrament and the preaching of the word have to go together. So, mm-hmm. but this, so this is a point of dispute. But the question that Ashwin raises is, um, if you baptize infants, would you also baptize an older member of the family that is yet mm-hmm. unbaptized? So, mm-hmm. for example, what if the Fili- you know the Philippian jailer believed? Would then his fourteen-year-old son also receive baptism? Or because he's fourteen, would they wait until that son professed faith, and then once the son professed faith, uh, would they then have baptized? Mm-hmm. Um, now you were mentioning Matt, as we were talking about this earlier. You you've actually experienced this situation. Ashwin mentions here. He says, to my knowledge, no church, Presbyterian, Congregational, or Baptist, baptizes adults who do not believe, or do they? And mm-hmm. um, before we get into to the way I responded to Ashwin, maybe you could just give your example because you have a you have a living, breathing example of this. Yeah, when I was in San Diego, um, and. Uh we were uh, participating in a PCA church there when I was an intern in seminary. There was a family um, that came to Christ. The parents did. And they had um, what I want to call, um, I guess this might have been actually after we left and I heard about it in retrospect. But uh, they came to Christ and um, they had kids that were maybe 7 and 9, 9 and 11, something like that. And when the parents were baptized upon profession, the kids were baptized as well. And I thought that that was entirely appropriate. Um, they were willing to live under their covenant father head. They weren't in, in what we could tell to be a rebellion against the Lord or anything like that. We weren't guaranteed that they were believers or anything like that either, but that's how they, that's how they worked it out. And um, I, I, it was an entirely neat thing. Um, and I think right, actually. Um, so anyhow, so so it is so it is happening. It is happening, yeah. and I yeah. I think my my response to Ashwin was that uh, just there on the blog was that this is happening. Um, it's not as common in America as it would be in a culture, and I think this is this is the issue. In fact, this goes back to our interview last month with Ken Myers, and you remember Ken said that one of the biggest issues for him in the American church. Is is our dislike of authority, mm-hmm. our informalism? He called it infor- informality, but it, it informality and authority uh, go hand in hand. When we don't believe in authority, we make everything informal. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we don't believe in you know living in a relativistic society, we we might say we believe in absolute truth, but do we live? Like we believe that there is absolute truth, do right. we? Do right. we live as Does if it mark our lives? Yeah, yeah. Do we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? If God says something, do we stop what we're doing and say, "Oh my, oh my, I'm not doing that"? You know, I think right. I think of Josiah when the word of the Lord was was read to him, and he rent his clothes and he said, this, "Ah, where have we? How have we gotten here?" Mm-hmm. And he immediately began to do something about it. Do we live under God as that kind of authority? Now that gets into the issue of what about authority within within the cultural realm? What about mm-hmm. authority in the in the family realm? Right. And we no longer live in a place where if dad says the God of our family is going to be Jesus Christ. Right. That all people in the family submit to the God of the leader of the household. We just do not comprehend that in, in an American individualistic society. I mean, honestly, we all know this is, we've gone over this a million times. In American society, dad is the wimp. You right. know, if you just watch sitcoms and you get this, mm-hmm. dad is, dad is the, the idiotic wimp who can't get anything done, who, who is lazy and unaccomplished, and mom is the, uh, the driving force in the family. Okay? That is, I mean, that's just typical of where feminism has brought us and has brought our church. There's some great stuff that's been written lately on the feminization of the church, and I think we need to pay attention to that. Um, 
we need to to get get to a place where we're understanding husband and wife in that complementarian way that says uh that understands the man's role as leader and the right. wife's role as helper and that those are those are not differences in terms of value those are differences in terms of function and right. this idea that that um god can say i will be your god and you will be my people and that a father can say i take you as god for my family is completely lost on us we right. i don't i don't even think we we understand that and so on the on the blog i responded to him and i said i think i think that the idea of a covenant household is completely lost on us we live in an age that god uh we live in an age that we cannot abide to do something simply because we're told to um or because it's what we're supposed to be doing um rather uh we live in an age where you know we need options i think ken ken talked about that as well Mm-hmm. That we li- live in an age where unless we have options, unless you tell me, you give me a truth and then you say, well, in response to this truth, you could either do A or B and it's really your choice what you do. And we'll do that. We feel good about doing that. But if I say, here's the truth. Now, here's how you must respond to that truth. Whoa. Ooh. Hold on. Yeah. Oh, you're intolerant. <laughs> intolerant. You're, well, yeah. and, you know, just to, to bring back, sorry, you know, you get excited about something new and and it, you think it's insightful. You bring that back to Keller and, and the way that he would talk about that, that particular um, malady that Myers picks out. And one of the things that we, we don't just value our personal individual freedom. Um, we, think, we think that's what gives us significance. So if you take my freedom away and you assign me to a household, and I'm consigned to what my father did. Come on, that's not real living, Sean. That's oppression. Well, yeah, and that's that's. And, uh... and it's also why we're where why we have difficulties. It's why we have difficulties with the fact that God assigned Adam to be head over us, and why we don't want Christ to be head over us. I would much rather, thank you very much, earn my own way. I'm not so bad, Sean. Come on. Light up on yourself. I'd rather make my own way. And, it, and it, so it, it violates our idols. It grabs a hold of them and says, oh, no, my individualism is the thing I value most. And you should value the individuals of that child. That's what you're supposed to create is a little independent entity. And you're telling me you're going to force him to be incorporated into a household. Come on. Yeah, I was watching a, a television show lately, uh, recently that had a one of those typical conversations between father and daughter, and uh, the conversation went, you know, went something, uh, something like this: daughter tells dad, um, you know, I'd really like to do this, go out with this boy, or something like that, and and dad's response is, well, honey, if that's really what you'd like to do. Um, you know, I want you to know I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to support you in mm-hmm. the choice that you make. You know, that is, that is 21st century parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of a parent actually coming and saying, saying, no, I, you know, I don't want you dating this boy or even this, and this is, you see this even in Christian homes is a parent coming and saying to their, their daughter who's met this guy in college and saying, you know what? He's not a believer. I forbid you to marry him. Mm-hmm. We've, we've lost that. So in a sense, what the, what the Pado Baptist position has going for it biblically is that covenant idea. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would, I would encourage uh, my Baptist brothers and sisters to ask seriously, we're talking about the, the breadth of the questions as opposed to the narrowness of the answers. Well, here's the breadth of the question. I'd encourage my Baptist brothers and sisters to ask how much is, is the credo-Baptist position a function of a modern or a, a Western individualistic I- ideology? And I'm not, I'm not judging there. I'm just saying that's a good question that I would love to see I, I would love to see some some 
uh, thinking Baptists respond to, not in an argumentative way, but in a way to say, oh, you know, that's a good question. Now, how do we, how do we deal with this question? Because I think yep. at the same time, if they, if we end up, we get to heaven, find out they're right and we're wrong, we're also going to have to ask, you know, how did we get to a, to a good covenantal position yet miss the fact that baptism was supposed to be based just on profession? Right. And right. how can what do we miss? Yeah. yeah, and because I think even if the Baptists are right, we still have to grapple with the fact that the church is covenantal. Right, absolutely. And absolutely. that this household— and that's, and that's very anti-the extreme individualism. Um, and Ken—I can't remember if on our podcast, because I listened to Ken Myers to some degree. I was listening to some work that he did um, at Gordon-Conwell Seminary this year. I think this is where it's from. But he says this runs into real big issues when he gets to, over to church discipline, because oh yeah, um, oh yes. what what right do you have, elder, to come in and tell me that this in my life uh, is wrong? I, I I mean I am the captain of my own ship. I mean I come to you because you hold worship services I like and you teach what I like. But uh, c- come on. This isn't this isn't uh, what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for life together. I, I signed up. I didn't sign up for you know gospel community. I, I signed up for um, you know you being willing to let me continue in my individualism in a place that I like. Because it is really all about me, isn't it? Well, and even on a positive side, even somebody who's coming to church and and out of great sincerity saying, I want to hear the preaching, I want to submit to God, we can still take the Word of God and apply it in individualistic ways. Yes. So it's not, not it's right. not just yeah. the it's not just the Pharisee in our congregation. It's also the right. the the sincere Christian. Yep. Yep. I think you're right. Think uh, you're right. Now now Ashwin goes on, he asks a second question in in response. Um and his question really re- revolves around something. He did some searching, and he found this thing called convert baptism, mm-hmm. uh, which I had not heard of. So, so I did what all good Christians do when they haven't heard of something. I Googled it. And uh, it was interesting, this idea of convert baptism. When you Google that phrase, you come up with two things. Uh, the first thing is you come up with several links to uh, Mormon websites, mm-hmm. the Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure... Uh, exactly what they obviously they call the kind of baptism that they do a convert baptism. I think what Ashwin is referring to is is something. Uh, there seems to be a link between convert baptism and what we would understand as proselyte baptism, which is what some would argue John the Baptist was doing with the Jews. That when John the Baptist showed up on the scene. He said to the Jews, you must be baptized, and they would have uh, understood that, according to some R.C. Sproul among them, that they would have understood that as that same baptism that is given to a Gentile convert, that the Jews now needed to receive that same baptism, and in effect, what John's message then was, was, Jews, you need to become like Gentiles in order to come into the into the kingdom of God. That's how uh, I think R.C. Sproul would understand that. So this convert baptism seems to be linked to, and Ashwin, if you're listening, and I'm, I'm we're misunderstanding your question, that that seems to be the link. There is to proselyte baptism. Now, what I found interesting is that there's a good bit of debate over whether John's baptism was actually proselyte baptism or whether it was uh, what the Jews understood as ritual cleansing. Mm-hmm. Um, you remember John says his is a baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness yep. of sins. So they, they needed cleansing, and they already had in the Mosaic Law a baptism by which Jews would have been baptized. It was a ritual cleansing. And there's there's a strong argument that that's what John was doing, whereas proselyte baptism is entirely extra-biblical. There's mm-hmm. nothing in, in the Bible about proselyte baptism. It was not a, um, it didn't come from the book, from the Law of Moses. And so that's the argument on the other side, is that what 
John was doing was simply ritual cleansing, and in fact, that was one of the reasons that the Pharisees didn't immediately stone John for heresy, that they mm-hmm. allowed him to continue was because he was simply doing what the the law of Moses already allowed for Jews. Whereas if he was giving to Jews something that was for Gentiles, there should have been a bit more huff on the mm-hmm. Pharisees' part. Right. Now, oh, yeah. either way... It was I, a Jewish I, ritual cleansing. Either way, it was know, a Jewish ritual. It was well ritual. established. Yes. And, yeah. and either way, it was for repentance. Right. Um, so I'm not sure that that's the issue, because Ashwin's looking in his question, he says, as I dug around various extra-biblical literature about baptism, I learned about convert baptism, which appears to straddle the line between believer baptism and infant baptism. Well, mm-hmm. in looking into this, I'm not sure it does. I think it it's just another, it's another middle ground. It helps us to understand what John was doing. Mm-hmm. But honestly, would maybe Ashwin's question is, would a whole family have received ritual cleansing? Would a whole family have received... Under John the Baptist? Under John the Baptist. Would yeah. a whole family have received pros- proselyte baptism? Right. Um, well, the answer is we don't know. Right, um, for sure. For sure. Given the covenant idea, given that uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2, after you know after preaching... Hellfire and brimstone, and the people respond and they say, what do we need to do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, for the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. That what uh, Peter is doing there is essentially taking uh, the Abrahamic covenant and bringing it into the New Testament. Um, and they're saying, here's, you know, there was the promise. Promise was to be given to the children of the covenant. Well, here we are now. Here's baptism. It's the new sign of the covenant. Let's give, you should be giving that to your children. So it's clear that that covenantal idea does carry over. Uh, that being the case, uh, the other the other passage that comes to mind is Colossians two, where baptism is called the circumcision without hands. Right. So it's clear that this covenantal idea does move into the New Testament. You know, we the, we we operate on the principle that anything that is not directly abrogated in the New, um, in fact, in this case, I would say that it's it's clearly repeated in the New. It. Mm-hmm then carries over and continues to be a driving principle. Even though uh, methodology has changed, the uh, the actual underlying principle of covenantalism, of commu- fa- co- uh, faith communities, continues continues to exist. And if you know if that's the case, I think that this that um, convert baptism could could really take us either direction. I think so, and I think that it, it the question is trying I think to helpfully process through what would the covenant look like. I, I think we have so much messiness because of what we started earlier talking about in terms of individualism. It's very hard for us to read. I think with eyes that would instantly get, if you will, culturally what was going on, um, which is which is kind of too bad because I think that it we're bereft of it in other ways. Um, you know, any pastor that's tried to, to develop real gospel community in his church knows exactly what I'm talking about, because the individualism is not just related to this uh, what may seem like a picky and theological discussion, but it's related to the real lives of people. And so we're, we're, it's kind of a bummer that some of this should be easier for us, but culturally we've moved so far away. And I don't think necessarily, I think it's part of the, the, a part of culture that's, that's biblical in terms of the form of life we would live, attitudes we would have. Um, could be distorted, of course, but, you know, it's kind of bums me out that we don't get this more easily. Like a lot of things we don't get about Christianity a lot more easily. Well, um, I think our, because our culture is actually against the, the concepts. Yeah, I think our hope really is that people listen to this podcast and they come away saying, wow, you're right, individualism does really strike at the core 
of the way that we do church, how can we be reforming? How can, how can I reform my own life and my family? How can I look at my own family in covenantal ways? Uh, particularly the men listening, how can, you know, how can I lead my family in covenantal ways? How can I be uh, a priest in my home? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are the questions. This is this talking about the breadth of the question. These are the questions that we would love to see. And the reason we do this podcast is that we want to see these questions being asked. And we want to see you carrying through and applying the answers that you derive from the word of God, applying them to your life. Mm-hmm. So, Ashwin, thanks for asking the question, and please feel free if you've got questions, if we brought up something that's interesting to you, if you've got an issue that we have not yet addressed in a podcast, well, for that matter, if you've got an issue that we have addressed in a podcast, please feel free to uh, comment on the blog and let us know, and we will uh, we'll address your question in an upcoming podcast. Uh, we enjoy doing this, and we enjoy uh, serving you and We pray that the Lord might richly bless you as you continue to seek him through his ordinary means. 